It's been an interesting couple of weeks. We each can only see from our own vantage point, can't we? And so, you know, usually most weeks go by because we have a very young church. I haven't had to do a lot of funerals, which I've been very lucky. I've done a grand total of two in my entire uh, time as a pastor. And uh, this last couple of weeks, I, I said to you guys a few weeks ago that I had a professor uh, who passed away, 49 years old, um, middle of working out one day, you know, last week, right? I have no connection other than I was in the gym playing with him one time, standing aw- awestruck. Kobe Bryant died, right? And his, the people that were in his helicopter. Uh, and then this last week, unfortunately, uh, found out that my father has stage four bladder cancer. So he's going to be fighting that as well. And so it just seems like the last couple of weeks, there's been a whole lot of just junk. And death and sickness are topics we largely like to ignore, amen? We largely like to hide from. And it's interesting because as I've been pondering this and thinking through this, and, you know, at the same time, uh, as my father-in-law is going through stuff, my, uh, or my father, my mother-in-law is also going through health issues. <laughs> And so Kelly and I have just been kind of like, what is happening lately? But it makes today's teaching even more upfront and in your face. I started to think about death, and it made me think of this exhibit at OMSI randomly from a few years ago. Uh, if you don't know OMSI, it's the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry in Portland. And the name of the exhibit was Body Worlds. Have you guys ever seen that before, any of you? Yeah, um, it's an exhibit that attempts to get people interested in the study of anatomy and how the body works. And in it, they take deceased people, cadavers, and they preserve them and pose them to be doing various activities with their skin off so that the onlooker can see the miraculous nature of the human body from the inside out. Now, to go through it, you can imagine, is both disturbing and amazing. But what stuck with me the most, as I recall it, was one specific sign that discussed the familiarity that humanity has had with sickness and death all the way up until the last 80 years. Do you know that in the time of the story that we're going to read today, uh, 60% of children born successfully would die by their teenage years, right? So if you had kids, you were guaranteed that the majority of your children would probably die by the time they were teenagers, That is unfathomable for us, and praise God for that to a certain extent. But it struck with me this idea of death being kind of almost weird to us because I think we often forget what a consistent part of life sickness and death are. They just are. And as much as Google wants to, you know, map the human genome and figure out a way to live forever, it won't happen. It just will not. Whereas the average person used to be very acquainted with death, we are now almost surprised when it occurs, aren't we? What? I I didn't know that was going to happen. Well, of course we did. Now take, for example, the current virus outbreak in China. As of yesterday, the coronavirus has been diagnosed in, publicly, 13,971 cases with 304 deaths worldwide. Only one death has happened outside of China. Now, while this is definitely a medical emergency, and I don't want to downplay that, the worldwide panic that is largely based on media's need for clicks online has blown it far out of proportion. Any of you who are medical people know far better than I do what I'm about to say, but we know it's out of proportion. How so? Well, the current rate of death is just over 2% of cases in those numbers I gave you. 2% of cases die. If the actual number of infections is up around 90,000, as some have said, then the rate of death is the same as the common flu. To compare the Ebola scare in West Africa a few years ago that got basically no press in comparison, 90% of the people that got it died. That's a pandemic. Now, as I said, there are currently 304 deaths worldwide. The number is growing very gradually. But just so you guys know, the regular flu every year kills between 290,000 and 650,000 people worldwide, okay? So don't get me wrong, the current virus in China is heartbreaking and sad to those who have lost loved ones because of it, but my point is this, why are we so shocked that sickness exists? Why have we forgotten that, that death is as much a part of life as birth? What it largely shows is that we've cast aside one of the most obvious truths that speaks to us of the need for God's divine intervention. It is a wonderful play out of the playbook of Satan. If I can get them to forget or ignore death, then why would they need a savior? 
Guys, everyone dies at some point. Literally everyone in this room, you will die. May not seem like it, because maybe you're 20 or 30 or 40. And even though it's the most equalizing force in our world, we still know that it's not how it should be. Mankind has contained within us the knowledge that death is not what was intended, but rather life. It's as if we have divine DNA that screams out in protest at the thought of death and yearns for life. And we get this divine DNA because we were made in this image of God that's eternal. It was imprinted on our very beings. The fact that we we're image bearers of an eternal God meant for eternal union with him. And so in, in generations past, they knew about death, but yet they had a different view of it. They expected it. And when it came, they knew that the next step was eternity. And the previous generations worked in a way where all of life was preparation for eternity. Not all of life is preparation for life as we exist today. And so this morning, we're going to look at this idea of death and life in the context of the text we have before us in Mark 5. In two similar yet contrasting stories, we'll see what the gospel is communicating to us about the reality of sickness and death and how it exists in our life. But even more importantly, far more importantly, it will show us the authority that Jesus has over sickness and death as he heals and as he resurrects from the dead. And so this morning, we're going to see that Jesus has authority over sickness and death. Amen? Amen? I pray that we'll walk away from this text this morning encouraged that even death has no hold on those that are truly in Christ. But let's first begin with the reality of death and look at it where it originates and that it, unlike any other human experience, is the great equalizer. So that's the first thing we're going to look at today. The great equalizer over humanity is death. If you wanted positive encouraging, this was not the church to come to today. <laughs> it will be by the end, but not to start. The great equalizer over humanity is death. In Isaiah 25.7, part of what John read to us earlier, death is called the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. It's something that afflicts all people, all nations, all creeds, all languages. No human can escape it. The old saying is, death waits for no man. And yet, as I said, contained within us is this feeling that tugs at us, that this is not what it's supposed to be like. And the reason is that we were created for something far different. Why don't you turn with me, I know I had you to turn, turn to Mark 5, why don't you turn with me to Genesis 1, right at the beginning of your Bible, and let's look at a few different places. In Genesis 1 and 2, in the creation account, it says that God wanted to dwell with man in the garden that he had formed. Well, in this place, God created, planted, and cultivated this garden, this place where he and mankind could exist in intimacy and in one another's company and presence. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Take the best worship experience you've ever had. I mean, that was pretty good earlier. I was going to tell Seth afterwards that he needs to read 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14 about how we all have different giftings, right? Some of us can clap, some of us can't. But that was really good, right? That was fun. That was exciting. And those worship experiences we have that make us feel good, being with God in his presence 100%, not just the Holy Spirit and his people, but in his very Shekinah glory presence, man, it's got to put that to shame. And so they existed in this place. It was a garden made for heaven and earth to dwell together. And so it was a kind of temple or tabernacle where the dwelling of God and the dwelling of man could overlap. And that is why when God gives directions in later books to the people of Israel on how they need to build the tabernacle and the temple, there's all sorts of imagery built into the material, into the metal that speaks of a garden. There's beautiful imagery. And it's reminiscing and pointing back to the original intent of God dwelling with man. And in the presence of God, there would be access to what is pictured in Genesis 2 as the tree of life. But let's first look at the progression here to see this tree of life. First look at Genesis 1.11. It says there, And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was, what's the word there? Good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. 
Skip ahead to verse 29 in chapter 1, and look at what he says about these good trees that he has planted. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. This is very important. We gloss over this a lot of times. He put the trees there. He said they're good. He said they're for food. He said, eat them. And then Genesis 2 happens. Take a look at Genesis 2, 8 through 9. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. Okay, There's, This is a retelling of the same story from a more detailed view. It's like zooming in. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So if God made it, it's what? Good. It's good for food, right? It's good for eating. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So then look forward to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Why? Because they're good for food. But then he says, The tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We know that every tree that God placed is what? Good for food. And this one is not good. And it's not for food. So what do we know about it? God didn't place it there. Okay? All that God planted was good and given for food, and yet this one tree was not to be eaten of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And something perverse was happening here. Who was it planted by? It doesn't say. We can guess probably that Satan took what God intended for good and he perverted it. That's what he still does, right? Isn't that true? He takes naturopathic remedies, right, like aloe and those kind of things, and we look at nature and we go, oh, man, this is so great. And then he synthesizes them and turns them into heroin and and things that will destroy and kill, right? He can't create. He can only pervert. He takes sexuality, which is beautiful and wonderful and meant for marriage between a loving husband and a loving wife for the raising up of offspring, beautiful, that was planted for good. And what does he do to it? He perverts it. He twists it. That's what Satan does. He takes what God created and he twists it, and then we buy into it. And so the same thing happened here. But let's not move too quickly past the tree of life. This tree was so powerful that it would cause the man to exist in immortality. It was so powerful in its capability to sustain mankind that God, then after they had chosen to separate from God, the source of life, rebel against him, he had to do something about this tree of life because if they ate of the tree of life in their current state, they would be rebelling against the source of life, separated from the source of life for eternity. This is why I don't understand why Christians love zombie movies. Literally, that's what they would be. They would be always dying for eternity. And we revel in those movies. Yeah, let's watch more zombie movies. They're so fun. No, that's literally what God came to kill. He came to bring life, not ongoing death. Christians don't revel in that garbage. It's worthless. Hans, it's entertaining. Yeah, so is the Disney Channel. Go watch Star Wars or something, okay? All right. Moving on. Little soapbox that wasn't in my notes. Where am I? All right. Genesis 3, 22. Look at what he had to do with this. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. He said, man, this death thing is going to happen. You've already started to decay, so we're going to let it happen. And the worst thing would be for you to be able to come back to the source of life in rebellion. And so he guards it with these buffed-out cherubims with swords of fire. Now, whether there was a literal tree or not, we cannot be sure. I tend to believe there was. Okay, But ancient Near East literature is very symbolic, and so whatever the mechanism, the truth of this story is that God provided some way within himself and within his relationship with his people for mankind to live forever so that man and God could be eternally one. But to do so, you had to be intimately united and connected with the source of life. To step away and expect that we would keep it is foolishness. The picture that's provided here is that in the presence of God, who is the source of life, eternal life is provided. 
But when heaven and earth were broken apart by our sin and our rebellion, all of a sudden that chance went away. The horror of this story is that it, this was refused, this idea of eternal life. And the rebellion and distrust of our first mother and father led to willingly choosing a break from the eternal relationship of creator and creation to go about life on our own. Adam and Eve proclaimed with their disobedience, just as you and I do, that they did not want God as their provider any longer. We can do it on our own. And this is just as foolish as a newborn baby saying to their mother, I don't need you. The consequence of this horrific choice was death. Now, we might protest that this is too harsh a consequence, but dear friends, that is not God's curse. He didn't place it on us. We chose it. What he was doing was a pronouncement of the truth. This is the consequence. It's always funny to me when I'm involved with people who are deep in their sin, I'll say, hey, the consequences of your action are this, and they get angry at me as if I'm the one that chose the consequences of their sin. Now, the reality is, is when we step into sin, we choose the consequences. Those who love us simply pronounce them. Now, when we willingly separate from the source of life, it's understandable that we begin to slowly but surely wind down. For those of you that are more scientifically minded, think of it in terms of the second law of thermodynamics. It states that in a closed or isolated system, entropy will always increase, which basically means a fancy word for gradual decline into disorder. Sound familiar? Two weeks ago, we discussed how God is the God of order. A willing separation from that source of order means you're probably going to fall into what? Disorder and chaos. And this is the case for our human body. And so our unrighteous rebellion against God means that we are separated by choice from the source of creation, the source of life. No matter what I do at 40 years old, I try to work out, but for some reason I'm not snapping back as quick as I used to, right? This thing called gravity just continues to take what used to be my pecs and it's moved it down to my stomach. <laughs> I don't understand. Disorder is gradually taking place, which means that death awaits us all and all of creation. And so the Apostle Paul rightly states in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6.23, the wages of that is, what's that word? Go ahead and say it, guys. It comes for us all. Every single one of us in this room will have to face it. This is the ultimate problem of mankind that needs solving. There needed to be a solution to this separation from the source of life and the presence of God. But over time, this has been denied and forgotten, pushed off into the future as if it will never happen. And by the time that Jesus arrives on the scene, even in a day where 60% of your children ended up dying by the time they were teenagers, he starts talking about the need to forgive sin and this great need of reconciliation with the source of life. But those surrounding him get angry with him and because they're stuck in the idea that what he's there for is to get rid of the Romans, is to free Israel. And yet, they all still are going to die because of sin and the wages of death being sin, or wages of sin being death. Now, what was all this stuff about forgiving and healing the sick, Jesus? Jesus knew that the greatest need goes all the way back to Genesis. And if those folks around Jesus were honest with themselves and went back to the very scriptures that promised that one would come to save them, they would see that the enslavement they suffered was actually just a part of the curse of sin that has as its highest authority, as its highest weapon, this thing called death. Turn again with me to Isaiah 25, and then we'll eventually get to Mark. Go ahead and go to Isaiah 25, and let's look at that scripture that John read to us this morning. Isaiah 25.1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. 
Now, if you remember back to Isaiah at all, verses 1 through 5 here speak of salvation from this city that represents the chaos of the world and all the brokenness that it brings. There's this idea of two cities, the city of righteousness and the city of sin warring against each other. But verses 6 through 9 then state something that's even more important, even more a part of the victory over disorder and chaos. Verse 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. What mountain is it? The mountain in which he reigns and he dwells and his people dwell. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. Think if only the people around Jesus had had these couple of verses in their head and Jesus is saying, I'm here to save you from death and sin. They would have said, yes, behold, this is our who? This is our God. Look at what it says there, verse 9. This is our God, not just Messiah, God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Verses 6 through 9 state the ultimate victory will come when God brings salvation from death. And to be clear, death is not just the ceasing of our body from existence. Death, as the Bible speaks of it, is separation from the source of life, God himself. That's why the Bible speaks of an earthly death, the first death. And then for those who choose not to bow the knee to Christ in allegiance and love and trust and faithfulness, there is a second death of eternal proportion, separation from God himself. All of creation, all of mankind exists in a fallen world. And this is an amazing thing, guys, because once this was thrown down, every human has to make a choice. This book that we hold in our hands is either, either myth and garbage that doesn't need to be followed, or we have something very important we have to think about. Where do you stand today? Are you in here trying to think and justify why the Bible isn't truth? Why you can continue going on in your life and not worrying about death? Or are you going to look at what's been placed before you? The gauntlet has been laid down, and it says death is coming. What will you do about it? What are you preparing for? What eternal state are you preparing for? Because all creation and all of mankind exists in a fallen world, we're given over to rebellion and chaos in the kingdom of darkness. You guys see this morning, another terrorist attack in London, guy with a knife stabbing people with a suicide vest on. Guys, it's not going to suddenly get better. What's amazing is on one side, we exist in the best world we've ever existed in because there's less death. There's less disease. When you look at the, the numbers across the world, the reason that we're at the multiple billions of population, seven coming up on eight billion, is because we have largely conquered a lot of disease and death. But guess what? It's still coming. All seven billion people will still do what? Die. They're just prolonging it. So we have to face facts. And you individually have to ask the question, what am I preparing for? You see, all of creation has been separated from the source of life, and so all of creation will experience the first death. The question is whether or not you'll experience the second. Hebrews 9.27 says this, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that, the judgment. You will stand before the judge of the living and the dead. What will that day be like for you? The great equalizer of all mankind is death. It comes for the big the small, the rich, the poor, the famous, the unknown. All mankind must wrestle with the fact of our mortality. Death is the great equalizer because all creation has been subjected to futility. Romans 8.20, for the creation was subjected to futility. It is this great foe that all mankind fears, and it is this enemy that Jesus came to confront in our story this morning. So let's take a look there finally now at Mark chapter 5, and let's take a look at how Jesus deals with death and sickness. Mark 5, starting in verse 21. 
And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceived in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, Jesus, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? Like, come on, dude, seriously? That's Hans's paraphrase. Verse 32. And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he, followed, uh, he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talithakumi which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Here we have two stories sandwiched together, as you guys are hopefully seeing, that Mark likes to do often. It starts the story, sandwiches it, and then puts the other piece of bread on it, okay? The second story. In both of them, as we compare and contrast, we're going to see a number of amazing things. But the primary point of this entire section is this. Jesus has authority over sickness and death because he is God. And that's our second point today. Jesus has authority over sickness and death because he is God. Again, as I have said the last two weeks, you might look at this and think, duh, Hans, we know this. That's why many of us in this room are Christians. But guys, remember that the gospel, according to Mark, was written down and circulated so that the first century Romans and pagans might be able to hear the truth of who this man Jesus was. It was written and circulated to those first century Christians so that they might be encouraged in the midst of having Rome martyr many of their brothers and sisters. Death was very much in their face. And these Christians were, in large part, facing the possibility of death at the hands of Rome. They themselves, hearing this, knew that at any moment they could be uh, covered in Roman soldiers, taken to the gladiatorial coliseums, ready to die. So they would have been listening closely to the Gospels that was read through the, the story that we're reading today. What power did Jesus have over death, they wanted to know. If we're facing death, we want to know what it should be. Now, interestingly enough, in the Middle Ages, you can imagine in Europe, with the Black Plague happening, how deeply people listen to this story, how intently. I wonder how many of us in this room are waiting for the sermon to end so we can go watch the Super Bowl. Hans, there's nothing wrong with the Super Bowl. Yep. And then guess what will happen tomorrow? The season starts over, and they're striving for yet another championship. Hans, are you saying the Super Bowl's bad? No, I'm not. Enjoy it. But are you focused on the fact that one day death will come? Even the greatest quarterbacks of all time, yes, even Tom Brady, will have to face death one day. He's not going to stay 25 forever. I know for you Patriots fans, that's sad. But So Mark interlaces the two stories here. In doing so, he links the two together because of their similarities. So you see a ton of similarities here. You have two women, one who was 12 years old, one who's been suffering for 12 years. Both are in their current state seen as ceremonially impure. 
It would be considered impure and unclean for Jesus to go and lay his hands on this dead body. Was she dead? Maybe, maybe she was just asleep, Jesus says. No, they wouldn't have hired mourners to stand outside the home mourning, as you see. And no, they wouldn't have then laughed at Jesus when he said she's just asleep. This girl was dead. So Jesus touching her was not a thing that a Jewish man who was serious about the Torah would do. But it would also be considered unclean for a devout Jewish man to even interact, even verbally, with a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. In that culture, both of these women, one young, one older, would have, been, uh, br- would have brought about an understanding that they were cursed. One because life was cut short, and one because of an abil- inability to conceive. They're both addressed as daughter. One by the father, Jairus, and the other by Christ, the incarnate father. And so we wait to see if what will happen to one will happen to the other. We see all these similarities. Now, you might ask, why are these two so linked? Well, not all sicknesses lead to death, you might say. Well, why would he link this one together with the other? But the reality is that we're dealing with more than just a desire for physical healing here. And this is the main point of all the sections we've been looking at recently. More than just wanting to get away from chaos, more than just wanting to get away from the demonic, more than just wanting to get away from sickness and death, the point here isn't getting away from those things. It's embracing the one you're going to, Christ. We get this wrong because of this idea of repentance that's been sowed in our our morally driven culture, which again isn't bad, but we have this idea of repentance that's morally driven. As long as I don't do the bad things, I've repented. No, guys, repentance is about turning from what you embraced and worshipped before and turning 180 degrees to something new that you're embracing and worshipping. The absence of the first does not mean the inclusion of the second. The removal of bad behavior does not mean you were a follower of Jesus Christ. You might be a really moral Christian, but you may also not be, or a moral American, but you may also not be a Christian. And so we have to turn towards Christ. And so what Mark is dealing with here in the first story of chaotic creation and then the demonic realm and now sickness and death is that these are three distinct things, but they're all part of the effect of sin against God. Separation from God and separation from one another. In the days of Jesus all the way up to the scientific awakening, all sickness and death was combined with the demonic. If you were born uh, with some form of handicap, it must have been demon. Or there must have been sin. If you had mental health issues, that must have been demonic. But what the author here is showing us is that there are actually three different angles to the same horrific chaos monster that aims to devour all that God has created. Sometimes it is chaos. Sometimes it is demonic. And sometimes it is simply organic. It is health and death. At its core, what does sickness do? It separates. It alienates. It turns us against each other. What does death do? It separates. It alienates. And so just as the demoniac of our story last week was separated and isolated, these two characters in this story are separated and isolated. And so we see that the greater enemy here, more so than sickness and death, is the same enemy that was actually confronted in the garden, that of separation from God and separation from God's people. When Jesus works to heal and he works to resurrect He's actually over and above doing those things, working to reconcile, working to restore shalom, oneness with God, oneness with each other, and oneness with creation. And only God can restore that which was meant for destruction, as Isaiah 25 told us. Now, there's one final connection here between the two stories that is core to their symmetry. Notice Jesus' statement of what it was that made the woman with an issue of blood well. Look at Mark 5:34 there. And he said to her, daughter... Your what has made you well? Your faith. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Look at what Jesus tells Jairus in Mark 5, uh, 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Now, do you and I believe and faith might be two separate things, but in the Greek, they come from the same root, the Greek word pistis. Everybody say pistis. 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 Okay? The Greek word for believe is pistuo. It's basically the same root in a different form. And they have at their core this idea of faith and faithfulness. We have made faith a mental ascent in America. Well, I think because we're products of the scientific revolution. 
I think that Jesus is God, therefore I'm good. But guys, if you are a faithful husband, do you stand away from your wife and say, yeah, I think she's pretty cool, and never interact with her? No, it means a devotion, a trust, a, a solidarity, a unity. To be full of faith is more relational than it is cognitive. And so to have faith in Christ, to have faith in him is to believe in him, to trust in him, to rely upon him for everything. It's not as simple as saying, Jesus, uh, I have a belief that, that you could heal me and, and you could raise up whoever you want. It's not a belief in his ability to do so. It's a relational trust and reliance in faithfulness. To realize and act upon the fact that only Jesus can restore us to shalom, to peace, to oneness with God and man, is to have faith and to cry out to him and know he is our only hope. This offering of trusting relationship is to anyone that will believe, and this is the primary contrast. Even though there's tons of similarities, there's a difference in the two stories. One is the daughter of an upstanding leader of the town synagogue, holy, if you will. The other was a woman of ceremonial impurity. One was seen in society as high, one was seen in society as low. You see, unfortunately, because of her issue of blood being ongoing for 12 years, she was most likely treated as if she were a leper. And this was the Torah law regarding the issue of blood. This is why it was that way. Leviticus 15.25 says, If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness, as in the days of her impurity she shall be unclean. Now, you can go back and look at Deuteronomy, and we talked some about this and the idea of what the unclean meant. It was a ceremonial law. Unclean meant she couldn't go in in that moment into the temple. But there was lots around it that we have, over the centuries, as humanity, taken and turned into this, this evil or good thing, Okay? And so the Bible is not bad here for saying this. It's our taking it and perverting it and changing it and looking down upon people because of it. And this poor woman was a product of that. But notice the love with which Jesus approaches each one of them, as if there is no difference between them. Both needing healing, both relied upon Jesus to heal them. And because of this, Jesus was able to heal, but also to resurrect. You see, the author has been building on this theme of the question throughout Mark, who is this man? You can remember it from the chaos story. Who is this one that even the waves and seas obey him? And the story gives us the answer. He is the one who can resurrect the dead and heal the sick. He is the one who can bring salvation. And we looked at one passage. I could give you dozens more, but the Old Testament says there is one who can do that. And who is that? It's God. Three times in this section of text, the topic of salvation is discussed, and we know this because of the Greek word. The Greek behind it is sozo. It means salvation. In verse 23, Jairus asks Jesus to lay hands on her that she may be made well, it says in the ESV. The word there is sozo, that she may be saved. In verse 28, the woman thinks to herself that if she can just touch Jesus' garment, she will be sozo, made well. The word is saved and live. In verse 34, Jesus responds to the woman and says, your faith has made you well, sozo, saved you. You see, the reality is, is that this is an image in the physical of what Jesus can do, not only in the physical, but also in the spiritual and these three come to a head in this situation. These three uh, uh, verses come to a head in which the daughter has died, and yet Jesus is able to enter her room and simply ask her to arise. Notice he doesn't sweat. He doesn't have to do any form of exorcism. He doesn't have to boil any holy water. He does nothing except he says, hey, you, why don't you stand up from death? That's the power he has over death. Daughter, arise. Little girl, I say to you, arise. Commentators agree that this was a foreshadow of Jesus' power of resurrection. In Jesus' eventual death and then resurrection, he would show that he is the one that brings salvation. For the hearers of this gospel in the first century, and now the profound truth that this narrative gives us is this. This is the last point. Jesus has defeated death and will ultimately remove it. Amen?
As with chaos in the kingdom of darkness, the author is trying to tell us that Jesus has already defeated anything that is opposed to God's reign, and that includes death. This is the fullness of the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus has come to assert his authority over chaos, over the demonic rebellion, and now over the enemy of death that seeks to destroy all he has created. What an amazingly good God we serve, amen? You and I and the rest of creation chose to cover ourselves with the covering of death, the covering of rebellion. It was not inflicted on us. We chose it. We chose to employ chaos over order. We chose to align with the rebelling forces of darkness. And we chose death and the knowledge of evil over life. And every time we sin against what we know God would have us do, we repeat that same covering of death. And yet, God so loved the cosmos that he created, that he willingly stepped into the flesh to bring about restoration to wholeness. And not only did he step into the flesh, he stepped into flesh that in and of itself was subjected to the curse of original sin. Stop and think about that for a moment. Jesus was sinless, yet he, for our sake, stepped into a body that would die, a body that was given over to original sin. That blows your mind if you think about it. God could have easily come down as the resurrected Christ, immortal and unable to die, the Iron Man of the day. Hey, guys, repent. He could have easily done that, but he didn't do that. In order to have power over the curse, Jesus subjected himself to the cursed humanity that he might show his power and prove his authority. He was sinless, yes, but as a human, he was still under the curse of the veil of death that is spread over the nations. And in that fleshly shell, the fullness of deity chose to dwell and submit himself to the same death that you and I will have to endure, being tempted in all points as you and I are. But in Christ's death, he was able to give himself as a ransom for your sin and mine. He was able to take on our sin and yet pay the penalty for our rebellion, taking on the full brunt of chaos and the wrath, the wrath that we deserved. The Bible talks about the wrath of God being poured out on sin. The book of Revelation says the wrath of the Lamb that is poured out on sin. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the entire triune God judged Christ on our behalf and gave himself over freely to death that you and I deserve so that we could stand with him in eternity. And three days later, Jesus rose from the grave proving that there is hope for any who put their faith and their trust in him for salvation. And this is the hope of the gospel and the hope of those authors that constructed the New Testament. As the Christians of the first century watched their brothers and sisters die martyrs' death, the gospel, according to Mark, was meant to remind them who they worshipped and what he had promised to them in eternity. And dear brothers and sisters, that same promise of resurrection to new life and relationship with God and one another is still our hope today. We just don't have the blessing of being confronted with it every day. I have no problem preaching this in Burkina Faso. People are on the edge of their seats because they know tomorrow when they go to church, they could be shot because of their faith. And so they rejoice in this. Are we going to rejoice in this fact today? Yes. Remember Romans 8.20 that I told you guys? Here's the fullness of 8.20 through 25. For the creation was subjected to futility. That's what we looked at earlier. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Years ago, I had the unfortunate honor of being the only elder that was able to get to a hospital, Emmanuel Children's Hospital, in the midst of a, a snowstorm. This was before I was a full-time pastor. 
And I sat with a family at the bed of their young child who died from an adverse reaction to some medication he had taken. And guys, when you sit in that kind of a situation, there's no prayer. There's no prayer that can help. And as mom and dad sat and wept and as the siblings sat and wept, this verse came to mind and man, I groaned. Oh God, why? God, resurrect. We groan because of what we see. We groan because we desire resurrection. We need this truth so badly. Don't forget it, guys. Don't get lost in the monotony of every day and forget that this is truth. This is the reality. You guys remember Hebrews 9.27? This is what we talked about earlier, that we will all die once and then the judgment. But this is the fullness in 9.26 through 28. But as it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, to put it away And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are you eagerly waiting for your Savior? Remember Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Let's look at what that says. For the wages of sin is death. Read it with me, dear church. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen? Amen. 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 As Christians, we recognize that death comes to us all, but because we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, it will not hold us. The reason Jesus could say she's only sleeping wasn't because she was in some soul sleep. It was because he's saying, guys, this is just temporary. Death is temporary for those that are Christ's. For those that are not, if you are not a Christian, death is not temporary, it is eternal. We have to understand this truth. For as with Jesus, we too will one day resurrect by the power of God, and this is a promise for those that are in Christ. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul that we read even just a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read it to you again here. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, in other words, everybody listen up. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. That's resurrection. And we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you are going to be looking at the TV today and when one of the teams, who I don't even know who they are, that's how out of it I am, one of the teams went, oh yeah, victory! How many of you are going to do that today? How many of you have done that at other games when it's your team? Raise your hand nice and high. Get them up there. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, that wouldn't work at a JV2 basketball game. Seriously, this is This is victory. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I look at some of you when you worship, and I know that you are standing in the Colosseum of Jesus' throne room, praising God for his victory. And I watch some of you when you worship, it's pathetic. Hans, that's so mean. That's the reality, guys. You show more joy at your child's little league game than you do at the fact that Jesus has purchased eternal victory for you. Amen? Amen. Don't take that as condemnation. Take that as, we got worship in 10 minutes. I better be on the shtick. Let's do this today, people. This is victory. 
You see, death is the great equalizer in a world given over to chaos, but one day the dead in Christ will rise to new life, resurrected to live with him for eternity. Last Sunday at the end of service, you guys showed that. You have the capability in you to praise God for this. And in that moment, in those resurrected bodies, we will see the new heaven and the new earth as Christ completes his work of cosmic restoration. And in this new heaven and new earth, there will be no sin as Christ will reign in the fullness of his kingdom. And in that moment, what was torn away from us in the garden will be restored. And in our reconciled relationship with God, we will once again have access to his life-giving friendship. And we will have access to him and to one another. We'll have the eternal life that we lost in the garden. Look at the imagery that John uses at the end of the book, just as we looked at the beginning of the book earlier. This is in Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. See, Jesus goes big, man. He doesn't go, oh, I'm going to give you the one tree of life. He literally says, I'm going to, I'm going to give you this many. I'm going to cover it on either sides of this river. And I'm going to have 12 kinds, a number of the statement of perfection. The leaves of the tree were for healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. God. Amen. 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 We're going to get this church Pentecostal. Last thing I do, we're going to be the most Pentecostal <laughs> Baptist you have ever seen. The Garden of Eden resurrected for the healing of the nations with this singular throne is what we have to look forward to. It's a singular throne that Jesus Christ sits on because he is both the lamb, the incarnate God, and the healer of nations. And this is a glorious future that we have to look forward to, is it not? If this is what we believe, we have nothing to fear. In the authority of Christ, we have nothing to fear. Guys, death is a scary prospect. My heart dropped at each mention of death that I mentioned earlier. Death is scary. I've been scared to death of death the last couple weeks as I've watched men not much older than me pass away. It's scary. But if we state we believe in this word of God, we have nothing to fear. Jesus came and died, and if he had left it there, we would still be in fear, but he resurrected, and he ascended, and he's enthroned, and he's given us his word. This is no different than what happened at the church of Thessalonica, which was struggling with fear that their brothers and sisters, who already had passed away, might miss out on this resurrection and the second coming of Christ. And so Paul wrote one of his most comforting pastoral statements in an effort to ease their worry. Would you look at it with me? Go to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. Now, over the last 200 years, before I read this, this section of Scripture since the early 1800s has been used to produce one theory of what the second coming will look like, predominantly this idea called a rapture, as if it was written specifically for that purpose. And so many of us have been trained to read this section and go, oh, praise God for the escape that the rapture is going to bring away from all the bad stuff. But guys, here's the reality of what it was written for. Toss that away for a second and try and read with me the fact that Paul is addressing a pastoral concern here. He's got worried people, and he's in that worry going to address something. A simple viewing of the context of this passage shows that its intention was not to give technical details on the coming of Christ. Rather, it was given as a pastoral encouragement. encouragement. So let's read it now. He says in verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. In other words, this was an issue that they had either written or talked to Paul about. What about all the people that have already died? What's going to happen? When Jesus comes back, are they going to miss it because they've already died? He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, this is the core message. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. 
Guys, this is the thrust of this passage, the resurrection. That when Jesus returns, his people will return with him as well. They will be raised. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. Guys, what's verse 10 talking about? They will rise. That's called the resurrection. That's the point of this. It's not those who stick around. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The imagery here is people waiting for their emperor to come. He starts approaching the city. They go out to meet him and come back into the place where he's going to reign. This was well known. This is what you would do when the Roman emperor would come. This is what uh, Paul talks about in the book of Philippians, talking about awaiting our king to come to our city. It's the imagery that's used here. This is not technical detail on how Christ is going to come back. The point here being... This is pastoral encouragement, and it's assurance that death would not separate the Thessalonian Christians from their departed brothers and sisters. Christ will come, and he will call for all believers, living and dead, to resurrect to new life so that we can be with him always. That's the point of this passage. Therefore, encourage one another with this truth. As we come to the conclusion of this mini-series within Mark, which contains these three sections on the authority of Christ, once over chaos, once over demonic rebellion, and now over sickness and death, I want us to pause today to truly think through the authority that he holds by his word, by his spirit, and his people in each of our lives. Is Christ your authority, or are you? Is Jesus the authority of your life? If not, dear friend, I beg of you today. Judgment day will not be great if you don't submit your life to him. And it is your choice to willingly continue to rebel against him. But I beg of you today, stop. Think about your eternal end and repent. If you'd like to do that, our Elders will be in the back to pray with you. They would love to talk with you about what it is to repent and turn and follow Jesus, to lay your life down at his feet. There is nothing in this life that is worth continuing to fight the king who has authority over chaos, over the demonic rebellion, and over sin and death and sickness. There's nothing in this life that's worth that. Turn and follow him today. For those of us who are believers today, I want to ask you, a question. Do you rejoice at the knowledge of being with Jesus and the relationship you have with him over and above everything else? If you walk away today going, man, Hans is really down on sports. I, I'm such a sinner because I watch sports all the time. You've missed the point of what all my sarcasm today has been for. Go rejoice today at the game. Rejoice at the Blazer games. Rejoice at the sports Eat it up for your kids, man. Celebrate. But do that more for the victory that you have in Jesus. Do that more for the fact that you will be standing eternally with him and with his people. Do that every Sunday beyond any sports game you could ever go to because on Sundays, the Lord's Day, we stand in celebration and victory that Christ has defeated death and hell. Amen? Amen. And secondly... My point today in application, I sat down and I'm like, okay, let's get some good application points out. And then I started to think all that you guys are going through. I started to think through every single family in this church and I started kind of going through the member directory and you guys are going through so much. So many of you are hurting and you're in heartbreaking situations and difficulty. And so this morning, I have this last point of application. Let's spend just a moment today before we go out into that crazy world in the shadow of his wings. As we step to the communion table and as we worship together, let's let this be a little slice of heaven where we can encourage ourselves and encourage one another with the fact that Jesus has defeated death and hell.
And even though death awaits each of us at some point in our lives and the lives of those we love, we can be assured that one way or another, when the Lord says to you and I, child, arise, your faith has made you well, those of us who are his will rise from the dead and we will be with him and each other for all eternity.